You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ascp.com/podcasts. ASCP: Empowering Pharmacists, Transforming Aging. Welcome back to another episode of Senior Rx Radio. We are your host, Dr. Veronica Riera Gilly and Dr. Michelle Lamb. This week, we have a fantastic guest and it is Dr. Heidi Moyer. Heidi Moyer is a doctor of physical therapy and a board-certified clinical specialist in geriatric physical therapy. They have been practicing for seven years in various settings, including acute care, long-term acute care, inpatient rehab, skilled nursing, home health, and outpatient. Dr. Moyer currently lives in San Angelo, Texas, and currently works as a full-time assistant clinical professor in the Angelo State University Doctor of Physical Therapy Program. They are program director for Evidence in Motion Geriatric Certification Program and a PRN physical therapist in the Shannon Healthcare System. Thank you, Dr. Moyer, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Well, we are glad that you're here to share your wisdom with us, and we'll start off with having you tell us some of the myths of aging and body composition, how that changes with age. Ooh, I love this topic. So I would say some of the biggest myths about aging is that uh, using assistive devices are normal, falls are normal, incontinence is normal. There's a lot of health conditions that occur and just become more common when we're getting older, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's a part of normal aging. So when we talk about aging, we have primary, which is our physiologic, and secondary aging, which is our pathologic. And our primary aging is what naturally happens to our body as we do continue to live longer. And secondary aging is what happens to our body as we're both living longer and then incurring conditions. We have been talking a lot about, you know, body mass changes and especially in the interest of talking about strength training. As we age, we do actually see a change in our ratio of our body mass. So we don't necessarily see a weight increase. And in many cases, actually due to poor eating habits, lack of access to healthy food, many other factors. We actually see a decline in weight, but overall we do see an increased percentage in fat mass and a decreased percentage in lean mass and bone mineral density. And that occurs kind of within the realm of primary or physiologic aging. But what we're really starting to find now is that a lot of things that change in primary aging, such as decreased strength, decreased motor control, we're starting to think that it's much more about lack of physical activity because we have seen a lot of different individuals who have been able to kind of delay some of those symptoms of primary aging and you know still go to the gym and and deadlift 150 pounds even into their 70s and 80s so we're starting to find that a lot of those changes are not necessarily so much related to disease pathologies or you know, what we thought is the normal biology of aging, but much more related to just lack of physical activity throughout the lifespan and particularly into middle and older adulthood. Thank you, Dr. Moyer. This is wonderful information. I'd like to just touch on something you mentioned in your introduction, and that was the use of assistive devices. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means? And perhaps I almost feel that it was put in the context of maybe it's bad to use a cane. Let's try to avoid that. Can you kind of talk about what you meant and just your philosophy on use of some of those those items? 
Sure. So just to clarify for anybody that's not familiar with the term, assisted device is also sometimes known as a mobility device. And when we say assisted devices as physical therapists, we're often thinking of canes, rolling walkers, wheelchairs, none of which are bad in themselves, right? They're inanimate objects. They can't be good or bad, but it's the way that they're either prescribed or used that could be either helpful or hurtful to older adults. So one of the myths that I had mentioned was that it's normal to use a walker or a cane as you get older. And in an example of a misuse of that device, I will often see patients who have been using a cane or a walker or something for a couple of years, and they're not necessarily using it very well. And when we get down to the nitty gritty of it and I ask them, okay, who gave this to you and were you trained on how to use it? They say no. And research has actually shown that if we give people assisted devices and do not train them properly on them, then their fall risk actually goes up. Another research study also showed that if you give somebody who doesn't need an assisted device, that also increases their fall risk because now they have this other thing that they have to coordinate with their walking. However, in the proper context with the proper training, and this is really where our physical and occupational therapy people come in, we're able to identify which assisted device is most important for that individual and safest for them to use. Because overall, as a healthcare and, and when we're talking about mobility and wellness, other research has shown that individuals that do need those devices, if trained properly, it helps to increase their mobility. It decreases their sedentary time, which we know is good for overall physical activity and overall health and wellness. So it's not necessarily that the devices themselves are bad, but because of these stereotypes of, oh, you're older, so you should be using a cane, that's not necessarily the case. That's completely independent of age. Younger people can benefit from using canes and walkers who have different health conditions. And we don't want to necessarily be prescribing these devices to individuals that don't need them because that could actually cause more problems in the long run. That's also a negative message about their mobility of, oh, you're old and you need help. Well, that's not always the case for a lot of people. That's interesting, Dr. Moyer. Sometimes I learn best by examples. Can you share perhaps a story about a patient that you've seen or treated that had the wrong device or had not received the proper training of how to use it? Mm -hmm. So one example I can actually give, this is less with primary aging and more with secondary aging. I had an individual who had a diagnosis of dementia and she was very lovely, wanted to follow the rules, but she had had a couple of falls and her family in her best interest had thought, well, we'll give mom a rollator walker. And this rollator walker is the one we call it the Cadillac. It's got four wheels, the seat, the brakes. So you actually have to follow quite a few steps in order to be able to safely lock the brakes, stand up from the chair, turn around, sit down which can be very difficult for individuals with dementia, particularly if it's a brand new device for them. So they gave her the device and insisted she used it, and then she would just get up and walk away from it. Or if she did use it, she would end up falling again. And it became a really nice, positive, long conversation with the family of, we know that you have her best interests at heart. <laughs> However, because of her current condition and her cognitive status, She's not going to remember how to use this specific device. So we were able to switch out the rollator with the four wheels and the seat with a rolling walker, which has no brakes, has two wheels, is much more sturdy. And if she chose to walk away from it or only keep one hand on it, it didn't run the risk of running out from right underneath her. 
So that was an example of where somebody could have benefited from a device, but just the wrong device was provided. And that was, of course, with the best intentions of the family. Wow. Thanks so much. That's great information. What else can you tell us about balance and fall prevention that we may not know? That was great and new information to me that there are different assistive devices that they're not always appropriate for everyone and they need more training on them. So what else can you tell us about fall prevention? Yeah. And and I just want to comment on your last point as well. In physical therapy, we kind of feel the same way about assisted devices and drugstores as some like pharmacists feel about over-the-counter medication where anybody can walk in and buy one and it's not necessarily going to be used the correct way. So perhaps that's that's another analogy that will, will help make this stick for this audience a little bit better too. But I'm actually really glad you asked about balance because this is the main topic that I kind of specialize in as a board-certified geriatrical specialist. So I recently just went to a conference last weekend. It was APTA Combined Sections Meeting, which is the National PT Conference. And we are in the process of, not we, I'm not on the committee, but I had, <laughs> we as like APTA Geriatrics are in the process of helping to put together a clinical practice guideline on falls, which hopefully will be published later in 2023. But they gave us a little bit of a preview as to what they found as far as synthesis from the existing data. And they found that as far as looking at balance and falls prevention, multimodal exercise, particularly looking at what's called reactive postural control, which is where we're providing a perturbation or a challenge at a level or intensity to a person that they have to take a step, use ankle or hip strategy. You know, essentially, we call it using a a fall or a balance recovery strategy to train that when they lose their balance, they're able to practice regaining it. Because it's not usually the loss of balance that causes the fall. It's the inability to regain the balance after it's lost, which is constantly happening with us all day long. But this multimodal exercise is something that's been in the literature, not just for community dwelling older adults, but we also use this in our older adults that are classified as frail or meet the frailty phenotype. So multimodal exercise for people who aren't familiar with it is looking at more than one fitness domain. So typically when we're talking about multimodal exercise for fall reduction, the primary component is going to be balance training, of course. But then we also look at strength and endurance training as well, because when we're looking at the constructs of balance, you actually have to have enough strength and range of motion in your body to be able to use a stepping strategy or a balance strategy. And additionally, if you don't have great muscular or cardiovascular endurance, then you're going to be at higher risk of falls, particularly when you're tired. So Michelle, since you love examples, an example would be an individual with COPD or congestive heart failure. If they don't have great endurance, They might look fine in a 15-minute physical therapy balance screening, but if I make that person walk for 10 to 15 minutes and then they start to get tired and I retest their balance, it's going to look very different than when they were well-rested after they had been sitting and we had finished their subjective evaluation and and examination in the the session. So we want to make sure we're addressing all of those. Within balance, there's actually six different types of balance, which I don't think people really know a lot. But the the most important one is what we call reactive postural control, where individuals are pushed to an intensity that they do lose their balance and they have to elicit a strategy to be able to recover that balance. Usually it's a step or a wobble or a couple of steps. I'd like to talk a little bit more about a 
concept I've heard when I've done consulting in nursing homes, and that is a hesitation on behalf of the nursing staff, that if they have a resident that goes through some physical therapy, whether they're for a short stay or a longer stay, and they might almost become overconfident in their ability to resume walking and with or without assistive devices. And so a little bit of a fear, if we rehabilitate them too much, they're just going to fall again. And they could, of course, have pain and really even more work for the staff. And they just don't want to deal with it. They'd almost rather than be in a chair. Could you talk about whether you see that? Is that a misconception or do you really see that attitude in nursing homes? And what's your opinion on that philosophy? Yeah. So I know a lot of us as physical therapy professionals have seen that attitude in nursing homes where, you know, you have your long-term side and your skilled side and somebody on long-term side is starting to decondition and their family wants them to be on physical therapy services. But the nursing staff is like, well, no, because then they'll just get up and fall. There is actually no evidence to support that claim at all. I just did a, a literature review publication, I think it was last year with the APTA balance and fall SIG. And somebody had asked us that question and we were like, well, we don't actually know what the research says. So we did a deep dive into it. And we found that there's actually no correlation with increased falls incidence after a mobility program. Now, of course, there is always going to be risk as somebody gets up and moves around. And I always tell my patients and the rest of the staff that I'm working with that there's no such thing as no falls risk. You know, so long as there is gravity, there's always the risk that we could fall. Now, if you consider two patient cases, let's say patient A has good strength, maybe some mild balance deficits, but good endurance. And then you have another person who doesn't receive any therapy services. They have less balance, less strength, and they are what we, we call it chair jail, where they make them sit in a chair and not, they're not allowed to get up. Because I had, I've had a, a colleague that had called it that once and I was like, that's exactly what that is. Yeah. So if the person is able to get up and move around, they're actually maintaining their current physical status. However, the person that is in quote unquote chair jail will continue to decondition. So if you're looking at these two profiles, the risk of falls changes for these individuals. So there's always risk regardless, but the individual that is allowed to get up is going to maintain their physical status for longer and be at decreased relative risk compared to the individual that will continue to decondition and we'll be at much higher risk in the, both now and in the future. Oh, and I just want to clarify, balance and fall SIG, a SIG in AP, the American Physical Therapy Association, is a special interest group. Thank you. That was really helpful. Since we're on the topic of falls and balance, I know that bone density comes into play with whether or not we're going to have a fracture related to that fall. So can you please talk to us a little bit about maintaining bone density and some of the myths surrounding exercise in our older adult population and how that correlates to fracture risks and their exercise regimens? Yeah, I, I would love to. So one of the, the biggest myths that I actually want to talk about is not related to older adults, but it's related to younger adults where our bone mass peaks at 30 in our 30s or at 30 years old. That is actually true, but only in the absence of routine, regular impact loading. So there have actually been some studies that have taken individuals with osteoporosis and done high intensity strength training as well as impact training, i.e. jumping which is something we do not normally do here in the United States. It's not part of our kind of normal treatment regimen. Here in the United States, we're very concerned about fracture risk, avoiding spinal flexion, 
telling people to not step off of curbs too hard. And here's this research group in Australia who completed what are called the Liftmore trials that used eight months of high-intensity strength training plus jump training. And they were actually able to find that even in individuals with both osteoporosis and osteopenia, they were able to improve their bone density. Several of the participants that had osteoporosis shifted into the osteopenia category, and those with osteopenia actually resolved their bone density issue. But that was a result of bone loading. It makes sense from a physiology standpoint because that is consistent with what we know with Wolf's Law. Wolf's Law is if you want to build bone, you have to load it. So if we have a bone that is not as dense as we want it to be, We want to load it to help promote the deposit of minerals and the remodeling of that structure to be able to increase the density of it. That gets a little trickier when we start to have individuals with osteoporosis on like a negative four, negative five on the T-scale. So the further away you are from the standard deviation, there is a much higher risk for fracture. So it's super important for us to be working on bone density, not the moment we turn 65 and get our Medicare card, but in our early adulthood and even encouraging, you know, students and kids that are in middle school and high school to continue these healthy athletic lifestyles as they continue to age and get older, because it's really that physical activity and that impact training over the lifetime that really helps with the bone density. Obviously, you know, our bones are used to being loaded in a certain direction. So, you know, if we're jump training, then our bones are being loaded, our long bones are being loaded through the axis of the bone. When we usually fall, it's being loaded from a sideways or more of a um, perpendicular fashion. And that's where we see more of a risk for fracture. And we see those fractures happening as the bone's not used to being loaded that way. So if you have a healthy bone, a healthy bone can sustain that, you know, sideways impact, whereas a bone that is not as dense will not. And that's where we get a lot of our fracture risk. So, you know, I I feel like the theme of this podcast is going to be physical activity and getting people up and getting them moving. We're starting to see, and and I'm really excited to see in Gen X, uh, millennials and Gen Z, who are all strength training at a much higher ratio than we've seen in past generations. And we've, you know, kind of debunked a lot of myths regarding strength training as far as like, oh, I don't want to get bulkier. You know, it's, it's not for women. It's for everybody because if you've got a muscle, that muscle's got to be stronger. So I'll be really excited to see as these other generations start to age, if we'll see a shift in this risk and this incidence rate because we do know that we have, in general, a much healthier population. A lot of that has to do with exercise as well as nutrition, access to clean water, health care. There's a lot of factors. It's not that older adults were lazy and didn't exercise. That's not what I'm saying at all. But environmentally, we are just set up so much better to be able to age healthier at this point. We just know so much more than, than we used to. Dr. Moore, you've mentioned nutrition. Can you elaborate on the role of nutrition and perhaps supplements in maintaining good bone health and bone mineral density? Do you have a favorite product? I honestly don't because I don't prescribe anything. (laughs) So as far as the scope of practice for physical therapy, we can provide a medication reconciliation, but we can't prescribe any type of supplements, a diet plan. We can give kind of general information on diet nutrition regarding a condition. I know that there are some products on the market that patients have enjoyed more. 
I think, what is it? There's an injection now, I think, for osteoporosis called Prolia, I believe. I don't know if you guys have heard of it or not, and I might be completely wrong. But there is an injection that has been, I think they get it every six months, and it has been shown to help increase bone mineral density without the risk of, you know, having to take a medication that people then have to sit up for an hour after to make sure that it doesn't dissolve through their esophagus. So I know that some of my patients have been happier with that because just from a convenience standpoint, that has been much more convenient for them as far as, you know, one trip to the the doctor or pharmacist every six months versus having to take a medication three times or once a week that they then have to make a lot of (laughs) accommodations throughout their day regarding. But in general for nutrition, as much as we can, we try to be really big proponents of getting your nutrition through your food. And that is just based off of what we know through gut absorption rates, the rate of other medications that people are taking. So very often in every setting I've been in, as meds are being passed around, I see people taking like 10 to 12 meds at one time. There is no way that that is being absorbed into their system. So throwing like a vitamin or a supplement in with that, or at least not, you know, timing it differently, sometimes can affect how that's going to work in their system. So we really try to encourage people to try to get that nutrition through their food, which is where it gets absorbed more readily anyways. You get a higher absorption rate through different foods versus supplements all the time. So trying to encourage, especially protein intake is a big one, not necessarily regarding bone density, but just for general health and for remodeling of all body systems. Older adults typically are not getting, first of all, the calories that they need every day. There's a lot of reasons for that. Number one is as we age, physiologically, our taste and smell do decrease. That is not a pathological secondary aging. That is primary aging. And if your food doesn't taste or smell good, you're not going to be as attracted to eat it. So we see decreased intake as a result of that. Also, a lot of people tend to still have uh, diet habits that they developed when they were much younger, when we had no idea what diet nutrition should actually be like. So I have a lot of people who will eat one small meal and one big meal, and they're not even reaching 800 calories for the day. I had one individual I was working with with physical therapy where she just had a hard time getting enough calories in her. So we took a look at just what I just asked her, what were you eating? You know, what are you eating throughout the day? She wasn't getting better through therapy. She was getting really, really tired in my session. And when she laid out what she was eating, she was eating about 900 calories a day, which is not enough. And there was just a little bit of protein in there. So I encouraged her. I was like, well, what protein do you like? She's like, I really don't like meat. It's hard to chew with my dentures. I'm like, well, what what else do you like? She's like, I like yogurt. I'm like, can you have two more yogurts during the day and just see how you feel when you come to therapy? And she did. And she finally started improving. So this was someone I had worked with for a few weeks. She started to do well initially and then kind of plateaued for no medical reason. She should have improved. And when we finally looked at her nutrition, we found that she wasn't getting enough calories and she certainly wasn't getting enough protein, which of course is important not only for muscle building, but also bone building as well. You have to have the energy to be able to remodel your systems. If you don't, then you're not going to get better. That's really interesting. I know my own mother lives alone and because she only cooks for herself and just eats by herself, I don't think she really takes in enough calories either. So thank you for that great reminder. You've touched on medications and even medication reconciliation. I love the idea of the interdisciplinary team with the pharmacist and the physical therapist. Can you comment a bit on any just medications when you see them on a med rec that you really are concerned about falls or just anything that you wish the pharmacist knew from a physical therapy perspective? Mm -hmm. 
First of all, I want to say I also like the idea of interprofessional collaboration because the pharmacist, unfortunately, pharmacy's usually been my last person I contact when there's a problem because no one else listens to me. And I'm starting to shift that and starting to make that my first person because you guys are such fantastic advocates for making sure patients are on what they should be on. A lot of my experience with medication reconciliation comes from home health. So while doctors of physical therapy cannot prescribe medications, we still can physically go through, look at what everybody's taking, look at the doses. And part of the reconciliation process is asking people, what is this and why do you take it? And seeing if they know, which is basically a test of health literacy. I have had people before who have been on 37 medications which is way too many. (laughs) I have had people who have been on three blood pressure medications all at once in the morning and they can't figure out for the life of them while they're dizzy. Surprise, surprise. I've seen adverse side effects from medications. Usually when I'm doing a medication reconciliation specifically related to balance and falls, of course, I'm looking at the whole person, but the medications that are more of a red flag for me, if somebody's referred to me for balance and falls, The meds are usually where I look first. And the big ones for me are antihypertensives, anything that has a sedative effect, anything that ends in PM, so Tylenol PM, Aleve PM, Advil PM, which are, again, sedative effects. Those are the big main culprits that I'm looking for because usually those medications cause falls. And if we adjust those medications, the falls problem resolves. So oftentimes I'll get somebody, I'll look at their meds, we'll do a balance assessment. Their balance is fine, but it's, you know, and that's in the middle of the day. It's not fine at nine o'clock at night after they've had three sedatives, taken their antihypertensive medication for the evening and are falling when they're trying to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. So we're not always capturing that in the physical therapy clinic, but by looking at the medication timing, what they're taking and what are the conditions happening around a fall, we can help to resolve that. Additionally, I think it's also important for us to recognize the definition of a fall because in every discipline, we all have very different definitions. So occupational therapy and physical therapy consider falls to be an event that leads to an unplanned contact to a supporting surface, which could be the floor, a chair, a wall, another person that occurs in the absence of a medical pathology. So if somebody has a stroke and they fall to the floor, if somebody has a a syncopole episode and they end up on the floor, if somebody is overmedicated and they fall to the floor, we don't actually classify those as falls because they're not truly balance related. There's some other type of condition or situation that's going on that is creating this person to have an issue. And if that issue, whatever is causing them to have these unplanned contacts with supporting services is addressed, then they don't even need us as physical therapy. So I've had a handful of cases where I get in there, I look at the meds, I go, this isn't a balance problem. This is a med problem. People don't necessarily listen because they think, no, 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 they've fallen so many times and they're older. I get that all the time. Oh, they're older. They're falling. Again, big myth, falls are not a normal part of aging. They're they're part of secondary or pathological aging. One gentleman I had in in home health, this happened in a couple instances, but he's the one I, I remember the most clearly. I got called in to treat him for home health in the older adult residence that I was providing home health in. Nurses said that he was falling, but they couldn't give me any information on what was creating the falls. They would just walk in, he'd be on the floor. It would be classified as a fall as per the paperwork they have to do. 
I looked at his medications and he was on 37 medications and I'm going, so here's the deal. (laughs) I could test his balance, which is going to be horrible right now because he's way over medicated. I promise you like (laughs) 37 medications is a lot. I was like, or we could admit him to the hospital, take him off all the medications and then just reintroduce as problems arise. Nursing staff didn't want to do that. Family staff didn't want to do that. In good faith, I worked with him for two weeks and then family decided, well, dad's probably going to pass away. So they put him on hospice. Well, on hospice, they take people off of all their medications. And guess who live discharged from hospice two months later? He didn't even make it to the six-month window where he, they had to reevaluate him. He was doing so much better. No more falls, no more cognitive episodes, no more agitation episodes. They really just thought that this man was, you know, had severe dementia. He didn't. He was horribly over-medicated. There are four or five specialists that weren't really talking to each other. And even on the hospice consult, they had said, like, I mean, we could admit him, but he's probably going to get better once we take him off of all of these. So that was a situation where it was actually just me and the pharmacist that were saying the same thing, but everybody else was very, very against it. I always love, and and again, I'm kind of ashamed to say that pharmacy has been my last line of defense and I'm working on changing that. But very often our flow is a patient is prescribed in order for physical therapy. And then that, depending on your state and direct access laws and what setting you're in, and if you're billing under Medicare A or Medicare B, then you usually have to report to that MD, DO, NP, PA, whoever wrote the order for you, your direct report to them, depending on how billing works and everything. So we have to report to them first anyways, because something's going on. Very often, I'd say, unfortunately, probably six out of 10 times I'm dismissed that there's a medication issue. And the big thing is, is that if there's a medication issue, I can't improve this person's physical status because even if I did, the issue, the problem, the falls will still be there. So I've, you know, contacted the doctor, the doctor's nurse, family, staff in the building, you know, everybody. And then again, unfortunately, the pharmacist is usually the next person I go to if I'm not getting the results that I want. And every pharmacist, honestly, that I have talked to has been absolutely amazing because I'm like, can you just take a look at all this and double check? And they go, wow, yeah, this is a problem. And despite me telling this to the entire team for the last two weeks, as soon as the pharmacist comes on the scene, who's surprisingly not always at the meetings for case management, which I'm shocked to hear in a lot of cases. As soon as they say it, they're like, oh yeah, we should change these meds. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't care who gets the glory, but like, let's just fix this person because the longer we let this ride out, the more of a chance they are of falling and hurting themselves and having one of those consequences like a head injury or a fracture. So I hope that answered your question. I'm very, very passionate about the med issue. And there's a lot of physical therapists that believe that it's not our, our problem. And it, if, if it's causing the problem that they get referred to for us, it is 1000% our problem because part of our role as physical therapists in our evaluation is to determine if they're appropriate for therapy. And if it's not a balanced strength issue that we can address, we have to hand it off to the correct discipline on the team to fix the issue. Thank you so much. That's wonderful information. And I'm making a note to myself that look for the physical therapist on the team and get their contact Mm -hmm. information. Yeah. And do know too that, I mean, just like everybody, we're all very, very busy. Having to call one more healthcare provider after I've begged and pleaded and pulled favors with everybody else. When we call you guys, we are desperate. (laughs) 
So please know that we're not just like calling you guys to annoy you or anything like that. I, I promise. Like we, we need to be backed up so we can fix a major safety problem with a patient. That was a really great story that you shared and it was so powerful. And I think that's a great example of the benefits of deprescribing and how it can be so beneficial when we have multiple eyes and multiple disciplines looking at a medication list and then advocating for less medication to improve the outcomes for a patient. So that was an outstanding story. Thank you for sharing it with us. Yeah, of course. I, I just, I feel like medicine has just gotten so much more complex that if we're not working together, we will miss something. Gone are the days where the same doctor that birthed your baby and signed your death certificate <laughs> existed, right? Like we have to specialize now and, and there's definitely a level of health literacy that has to go on within each individual who's a healthcare professional to know what are the other players of the team? What do I need to know from a pharmacy standpoint? What do I need to know from an MD? NP standpoint of what their workflow is and what they're prioritizing. Because when we understand that and have that level of health literacy on ourselves, then we're able to better function within that team. I have a question that's not on our list. I had an idea as, as we were talking about the MedRec. Mm -hmm. And do you think that there's a place for pharmacists to be embedded in a physical therapy clinic to support medication review when patients are coming in? And being evaluated for the first time? Yes. <laughs> Short answer, yes. Even just from a consultative standpoint, hey, will you take a look at this? You know, and higher risk patients, yes, a thousand percent. I'm a big believer that if anybody's getting medications from more than one prescriber, we need at very least a pharmacist on the case to take a look. Very often the workflow for individuals is and, and specialists and everything is they'll prescribe a med, they'll fax all that information to the primary provider. And that information may or may not be read. So I, I would love to see more of an integrative care kind of model, especially in outpatient clinics, because this is where we catch a lot of these errors. Like I talk about home health and stuff, but I still catch these issues in outpatient. These people are having active medication issues. They just haven't gotten to a point where they have fallen and needed to go to the hospital. So, you know, I, all of this is brewing, whether it's a severe problem or a mild problem. But again, even an outpatient, if we were to catch these more, quote unquote, mild issues, we could head off a much more disastrous hospitalization that could completely change somebody's quality of life. And I mean, between the two of you, if, if you have like a medication list of like five to seven meds, how long does that take you to go through and reconcile on your end as a pharmacist? Five to seven meds for me would be a short list. Mm -hmm. um, so as far as length of time, I can't put a limit on it, but I know that I would be relieved to see such a small list of medicine. <laughs> yeah. patient. You know, you, you've touched on quality of life. And to me, one of the issues that I see some of our residents really struggle with is incontinence. Can you talk about perhaps the role of the physical therapist and uh, just treatment of both male and female incontinence and how we can just really integrate that into the dignity and quality of life of our residents? Yeah. So incontinence is not a normal part of aging. Uh, it is common, uh, but there are us there's usually some type of medical condition that's causing the incontinence, whether that be a prolapse, prostate issue, something else. Again, those things can happen in younger people as well. Incontinence is definitely a hot topic in older adults. And I've had kind of a 50-50 split of people that are more than willing to talk about it because they're not happy that this is happening to their body and other people that think that this is normal or they're ashamed and don't want to talk about it. 
incontinence is a medical problem that needs to be addressed. There are physical therapists. I have a little bit of background in pelvic health, but you can actually get a board certified specialty in pelvic health and be able to do both external and internal exams, coordinate with urologists and OB-GYNs on, you know, different activities and, and devices and interventions to be able to help people improve their control of continence. I, from a physical therapy standpoint, when I hear that somebody is incontinence, I see that as a physical issue as well. Because if people do not have the strength in the bottom of their pelvic floor to help to maintain their bladder and their bowel control, then I know that they're probably going to have a weak core, weak hips, and we're going to see, if we haven't already, lower extremity and weakness issues, which can lead to other mobility problems. My biggest view and and kind of my big take-home point on pelvic floor physical therapy, both for male and female anatomy, is making sure that people are getting screened early and often. And again, this comes back to health literacy and ageism within healthcare providers where I have had patients who are massively incontinent. They have a uterine prolapse. And when they have talked to their doctors about it, their doctors just say, oh, well, you're old. What do you expect? And it's like, well, I think she expects to not have her vagina fall out of her body like, or anything else. So it's, it's very much like, and, and then we usually, if that's the case, I will usually recommend that they go to an ob or someone else that can help because there actually are different devices they can put to help reposition things or surgery that can be done. Unfortunately, a lot of this, you know, kind of culture behind incontinence comes from our younger experiences and what was normal. And when we're talking about incontinence in older adults, depending on, on the person and who they are, this might be somebody that's had nine children. They've never gotten what we call fourth trimester care, where after the individual has their baby, whether it be from vaginal or cesarean delivery, that they get referred to pelvic floor physical therapy, which is a big push we're trying to do to make sure that we can minimize complications. We're making sure that mama or, or the person who birthed the individual is healthy and is able to either go on to have another birth in the future or to just go back to, you know, lifting things and and doing what they need to be able to do safely without putting themselves at risk. Another big problem that we see with incontinence and a huge association is if people have incontinence and pelvic floor weakness, we also see a lot of lower back pain because now that support of the spine has to come from somewhere so we see a lot of, you know, abdominal pain, lower back pain, and then that further affects quality of life. I've also seen, especially as, as, as I was mentioning culture, I think there has to be a bigger shift on what is and is not normal incontinence. So I know in younger sports populations, as people are max lifting, there's this subculture that thinks that if you're like doing a max lift on a deadlift or whatever, that you should urinate yourself. And that's actually a complete failure of the pelvic floor. And you're actually putting yourself at high risk of injury and you're lifting too heavy. That culture, like we talked about before, what we learn when we're younger carries forward when we're older. That's going to have to change in order to you know, provide improved health outcomes down the line. Same as with people that, you know, have delivered children as well. So as people deliver children, as things are starting to shrink back after the massive stretch of the exit and and eviction of the child, you know, there are some incontinence issues initially that should go away with time and with exercise. And there are exercises that can be done to, to help with that. 
But again, another culture shift. So a lot of times when geriatric therapists say they're a geriatric therapist, I always consider myself to have a geriatric focus. But I also really love working with people who are middle-aged and heading towards older adulthood because I get to give them a little insight as to what's going on in their body and let them know like, hey, here are some changes you can make. And this is the effect it's going to be when you're older. You know, if you start an exercise program now, you can carry your groceries into the house. You could probably avoid needing an assisted device because you're going to stay stronger and have a little bit better balance and, and we'll be able to avoid some of the more negative consequences that we associate with aging. Thank you, Dr. Moyer. I've really enjoyed our conversation today and I've been inspired to do different physical activities to load my bones differently and help prevent osteoporosis. And what are your takeaways, Michelle, from this conversation? So my takeaway would be really to work with a physical therapist and challenge any assumptions that I might have about aging. And that would be what types of exercise I can or should do, how normal or typical it is to think that a cane is a good idea, and just, just lean on you as a lean on you. Sorry, that, that, that came across wrong, perhaps. But just really reach out to our physical therapist as a, an amazing resource for a team that works with our older patients. So thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. I really enjoyed being here. And uh, if there's any more information that you or your listeners have, I'm more than happy to share my contact information so I can help answer yeah. questions. Yeah. How, how can we follow up with you? So I can give you my email, H-M-O-Y-E-R at E-I-M-P-T dot com. And I can send that in the chat as well. I'm trying to plug my social more because I was told that's a good thing to do by my students. <laughs> I'm 32, but I'm a horrible millennial. So you can also follow me on Instagram at the non-binary DPT. I can also give that to you as well to put in any description. But, but yeah. And is there anything else you'd like to add before we close? Stay active. Build those bones challenge the negative views on health and aging. The biggest thing that I see as I've been looking at ageism much more closely in the last few years is people don't know till they know. And that includes both patients and healthcare providers. So I still to this day have several conversations with healthcare providers where they say, oh, well, this is normal. And I go, no, it's not. And they're like, what do you mean it's not? And they have no idea. So don't be afraid to challenge and help those around you grow and making sure that your patients are getting the best care possible. Gosh, Dr. Moyer, wonderful information. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. You're listening to Senior Rx Radio, brought to you by ASCP. Visit us online at ASCP.com slash podcasts. ASCP, empowering pharmacists, transforming aging.